0: The title of uh, what we're talking about over here is uh, sort of a the history that forms the background, I guess, of the three weeks. Uh, and the reason I call it Hanukkah to is because I'm going to be making an argument over here, a historical argument I hope over the course of the next month, as, as it is, the next four weeks. Um, by that, I mean that, as I always preface everything, history, you know a little bit about the past. You don't know everything about the past. You don't, you don't even know much about your own lives. You know a little bit about your life, and certainly someone else's, and especially when you're talking about thousands of years ago. Uh, And we're talking about playing around with old ancient records, of which there aren't that many, of the periods that I'm speaking about. Uh, They didn't have Social Security records and things like that in the time of the Maccabees. Uh, Not that your Social Security records tell everything about you either. So um, when you're dealing with ancient history, which is what we're talking about over here, uh, the technical term for this in the universities is ancient Judaism. There's biblical Judaism, there's ancient Judaism, and there's later Judaism. Uh, when you talk about things that happened literally 2,000 years ago and so, um, we are guessing. That is to say, we're working with a finite amount of sources, um, and we're doing the best we can with those sources. There doesn't exist a continuous history by anybody, uh, Josephus is the closest, of that entire period. Certainly not in the Gemara and There are scattered stories and references here and there, and there are other sources out there, and uh, the trick is to make the Chon come out just right. And I'm serious, because you know, if we make up things, then it's what you call fiction. But if you deal with what we seem to think are established, recorded facts, uh, then it's history. But history is not the factoids, who lived when and what battle was fought, and how and when and why. But history is the story you make. I emphasize the word "make." You construct out of those facts. With that um, sort of caveat in my, uh, as a starter, we begin. As I decided to entitle this uh, from Tisha, uh, from Hanukkah to Tishav, uh, not to be cute, but in point of fact, the period of the Chorban, and that's what we're coming to. Three weeks is unfortunately a period in Jewish history uh, marked by the uh, by, by real violent internalized strife among Jews, uh, for long periods of time. And the destruction of Asim Mignesh and all that was the culmination of this process which went over several centuries. Over centuries. It's not a pretty picture. But the three weeks is not about looking at pretty pictures. When we talk about things like Shiva Abba Thomas and Tishevov, we're looking at, so to speak, the ugly side of Jewish history. And if uh, we're commanded to commemorate it every year, I guess the idea is that periodically We have to look at not only the glorious crossings of the Red Sea and all that sort of thing, but the inglorious uh, events that characterized what we call today, generally speaking, the Biosheny period. There's a lot of good things that went on at that time, but there are a lot of bad things that went on at that time, unfortunately. Uh, So we have to start from the beginning, or at least I have to start from the beginning, because if you're ever going to make a historical argument, it doesn't make any sense until you take it from the bottom up. The period, the Second Temple period, we know, had many problems with it, starting from the very beginning, because the Jews, of course, once upon a time had been living in Israel and had their own independent kingdoms. Not that they were free of trouble in what we call the Bayashenik period, far from it, but uh, they had their own sovereign uh, nation or nations, and uh, they were all destroyed, as we know. And then, uh, thanks to the Persians, interestingly, Cyrus the Great, the Jews were, 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 were allowed to return back, to Israel, at least some of them were. And as often happens, uh, they were first allowed in, then the king of Persia changed his mind and said no. Then they were allowed to build a base of Migdash, and then the king of Persia changed his mind and said no. And then through all kinds of lobbying and intrigues uh, at the court of the king, very similar to what happened in Israel in 1947 and 1948, the end of the story is the Jews were permitted to establish them a little uh, foothold, you might say, in Palestine, because that's what it is, Eretz Israel in the time of the Second Temple Period, as we're going to see over here, for most of the time, was a small fraction of Eretz Yisrael. It was just the area around Jerusalem. Uh, I would guess 20, 30 miles circumference around Jerusalem, that's where the Jews, was a Jewishly held territory. Outside of that were obviously significant portions of Eretz Yisrael, which then, like today, were inhabited by uh, Arabs, Greeks, uh, Samaritans, and all kind of other groups who were not Jewish, number one, and who hated the Jews, number two, and the Jews, of course, hated them as well. So nothing is new in the Middle East. Unfortunately, the uh, story that we know, very little we know about the first period of the Jews coming back, uh, time of the Persians, already starts to show certain signs of trouble, although we know very little. It's what you call the Book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The, the Jews, as I say before, through various intrigues in the palace, we talked about that here once, in connection with Purim, got uh, permission to get the second temple built. Uh, and after they did that, six months later, Ezra, was like the leading rabbi at that time, we're told, in the book of Ezra, shows up, makes an aliyah with a couple thousand people, and you already have a big problem with intermarriage. And very interestingly, the uh, priests are the leaders in the sin. Okay? Fiyad uh, The sons of the Kohen Gadol, for example, married uh, Samaritan or Arab women or things of this nature. And this becomes a big theme in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, which means that already early on in the Second Temple period, we are, from the little that we know, uh, you have problems, number one, with the priesthood, and number two, uh, with s- certain factualisms, say some Jews go this way, and some J- Jews go that way. And the Book of Ezra, he makes a whole big campaign against this uh, phenomenon, but as often happens, it's not really successful, because by the time you get to the Book of Nehemiah, which takes place right away after Ezra, he, Ezra is still alive in the Book of Nehemiah. they have the same problems over and over again. And so it reminds you, for those who are familiar with the Tanakh, with the biblical period of the uh, uh, I- idolatry problem, which is, they kept saying, we're not going to do it, not going to do it, and like the alcoholic, you end up coming and doing it again and again anyway. We know very little, as I say before, about this period, and we know even less about what comes afterwards. Uh, this is that gap that we talked about once over here in uh, Shulah, what they call the Persian Gulf, with the 150, 170 years. Uh, it's very, what we call in Hebrew, more pal, very cloudy, and... Uh, we cannot even guess what was going on at that time. But then, the fog lifts a little bit, and uh, you get to the 300s, and of course, this is a map, as you see over here, of the Mediterranean area, let me me just get this right, okay, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and here's what was the Roman Empire, we're not concerned with the Roman Empire, we're concerned with Alexander the Great. In the 300s, Alexander the Great, in the the late 300s, I guess you'd say, who was the king over here in Macedonia, right near Bulgaria, his father conquered Greece, he was not Greek, his father, conquer- his father conquered Greece, and, um, and then he went on to conquer the Persian Empire, which is this huge area <laughs> beyond even the map, including right there, including Israel. Okay, now we start to have information about what happens with the Jews, although it's still not clear, it's still not clear. Uh, one thing we know from this period is that what happens all over the area that Alexander conquered, which really goes as far as India, you know? I'm sure you've heard about Alexander the Great and other, other places beforehand, uh, was not only that the guy conquered a huge territory, but uh, very interestingly, he imposed, or his successors imposed, the Greek culture upon it. This doesn't always happen. Very often what happens is one country conquers another country, but the subject countries try to maintain their cultural identity uh, and may rebel and things of this nature. This is what they call the Hellenistic period in history. Uh, If you went to high school, the golden age of Greece is what they call the classical period, and then afterwards from Alexander the Great On, it's called the Hellenistic period. And everybody in all these areas, to one degree or another, whether in ancient countries like Egypt, for example, as you know, had an ancient civilization. Babylonia, of course, had a very old ancient civilization. Persia over here had a very old ancient civilization. And for some reason or another, in one fashion or another, they all surrendered and they became Hellenized. Doesn't happen too often in history, but it happened this period. You can go there today, and you'll see Greek temples in the middle of Afghanistan and places like that, which is interesting because they had nothing to do with Greece, but they obviously they were so amazed by Alexander the Great, and they were so amazed by the nature of the Greek culture that they encountered that the peoples, obviously, uh, it's very unusual, dropped whatever they're doing and picked up the Greek one. Either they did it directly, or they did it what we call syncretistically, which means that they took a chant of the existing religions and cultures and mixed it together with the Greek ones. This is all what they call Hellenism. Now what about the Jews? Well. The big answer to that is that the Jews, like everybody else, were uh, powerfully impacted by the Greeks, powerfully impacted by the Greeks, uh, but not all the way. Everybody else changed their culture and their religion. The Jews changed their culture, but did not change their religion. Okay? The Jews certainly Hellenized, no question about that. Uh, after all, who's the lead, I always like to say this, who's the leading Talmud Chochem after Shimon and Tzadik? Antigonus of Soho, Antigonus Yishoho. Antigonus is not a Jewish name. So uh, that's interesting, the leading rabbi in the world, the great person in the Pirkeiobos, has a name like that, means the parents gave it to him. So uh, don't fool yourself for a second. The Jews, almost everywhere, as far as we know, I wasn't there, but as far as we can tell, the Jews were very powerfully impacted, culturally speaking, by Hellenism, by the Greek culture, uh, but they did not change their religion, whereas everybody else was both. They were culturally impacted, and they also religiously impacted. Now, there are reasons for this, and you know, that would take it too, too far. Suffice it to say that the Greek culture and the Greek religion in phase two from the time of Alexander Owen, and remember, he was not Greek. He was a barbarian whose father conquered Greece, and they spoke Greek, but uh, they weren't Greek. The Greeks hated him. He, he conquered and crushed their cities. Um, but his, that's what happened, but his, Uh, culture that he carried with him and that his soldiers, who were not Greeks, they were Macedonians. Remember that. The Greeks were the second-class citizens, and the other people in the empires were the third and fourth class. That's how it worked. The top dogs were the Macedonians. They became the kings and the generals and the princes and all that sort of thing. They were the big ones. And under them was a whole corps of Greeks who served them and functioned in those kind of... uh, administrative and cultural capacities, and under them with everybody else. And that's why all the subject people said, well, we'll never get to the top position, but let's try for number two. You know, let's, let's move into that, and that they could do, if they Hellenized. And the Jews, um, as I say before, were exceptional in that they didn't, did not change their religion. Because as I was saying before, anybody who knows the history of Greek culture knows that up to Alexander the Great was a period of creativity, of Chiddush. Uh, this is what they call the Golden Age of Greece, the classical period that you learn about in school when you had to write essays on the way back when. You know, Pericles, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the Golden Age of uh, 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 the Athens the Peloponnesian Wars and all that business. I'm talking about a period when the Greeks were crushed by the Macedonians and then they took their culture, so they took it second hand and second rate. And so what they really spread all over the world was a second rate uh, imitation culture Uh, and the same thing is true for religion. Now, the reason I mention that is when the Jews met the Greeks, it was in phase two and not in phase one. You understand? When the Jews met the Greeks, after the time of Alexander the Great, the Hellenistic religion that they encountered was not a turn-on at all. Therefore, we don't find, as far as I know, hardly any Jews being interested in converting religiously to the Greek religion. The Jews at that time, it just was... uh, Amusement of their skepticism, as a historian once put it. You know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't seem like it had any, any validity. The level of culture is a different story. Because culture, as we all know, uh, let's put it this way. This is being held today, it's a, it's a class in Jewish history, in the English language. And nobody in this room, I don't care how religious you are, is dressed the same way that Avram Yitzvah, Yaakov Moshe, Aaron and Shlomo, or Sar Rivka, were dressed. So culture impacts everybody, no matter who you are. But religion is a different story. But it's a trick, right? It was a funny period in history, and therein lies the tale. Now, specifically, as many will remember, Alexander conquered this whole area and then died. And when he died, he left no successor, so his generals fought it out, and by the time the dust cleared, there was the king of the north, this area over here, and the king of the south, that area over there, as they call it in the Book of Daniel. Egypt would be the south. That's the Ptolemaic Empire, this is the Seleucid Empire. All that means is that one of the generals of Alexander named Seleucid grabbed a huge territory, what, so to speak, north, and the other general named Ptolemy, and they were Macedonian generals, grabbed Egypt and and Eretz Israel too, very interestingly. Uh, and uh, once again, therein lies the tale. So during that period, now I'm talking from 300 to 200 BC, during that period, the Jews were under the, they all lived in one of these two kingdoms. So that means the Jews, wherever they were, uh, lived in an area where the official language was Greek, where the official culture is Greek, uh, where the uh, games, and uh, the civic life, and uh, the way you entertain yourself and, 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 and find intellectual and other kinds of stimulation uh, are, is Greek. And so the Jews had to do 50-50 on that because there was only so much they could do. A lot of the Greek culture was tied up with religion. You understand? For example, sports. I know today baseball and, and basketball and so forth are secular, and they have no religious content whatsoever. But once upon a time, that was not the case. What we get is originally the, the Greek religious forms, which we've did, taken the religious element out of it. So you'd have a game, so to speak, between Athens, for example, on the one hand, and Sparta on the other hand. You'd have the home team going out to the stadium at the, you know, the visiting team coming to the, stadium, the home team. They would sing the anthem of both gods, instead of the cities. And uh, you shake your hands and all that kind of stuff. Many, many, many of the things we do today. it's Real, it's like they used to say in my time, it's Mama Shavota The only thing is, it's not having any religious content anymore. But the two or the forms are, uh, and when one w- team wins over the other, it's a symbolic victory of one god or goddess over another one. The same way, you know, it's a victory of New York over Cleveland or something like that in a strictly symbolic way. Okay? And, uh, and people get into it. Nowadays, it may be true that a Jewish boy or girl can go to a baseball game. At that time, it was Usher. <laughs> to go to a baseball game. It, was actually a, it literally was a vodazar. It wasn't just a speech from a mashkiach and a yeshiva. It really was a vodazar. That's the way uh, 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 the Greek religion, among other things, was practiced. Therefore, uh, Jews were not able, I use this as a one example of many, Jews were not able to participate in many of the cultural and civic activities that define a normal Greek life. The point is that the Gaim were okay with that. The Macedonian rulers in the north and in the south, over a hundred years and more, quite a long time, made an exception for the Jews. It's really interesting. The Greeks in general, or to be exact, the Macedonian kingdoms, the governments, um, didn't find it uh, necessary, in their opinion, to try to shove it down the throat of the Jews. Uh, Obviously, the Jews were a productive economic element in the society. Uh, I always like to use the example of King Ptolemy I and Ptolemy II. Ptolemy the first, and I think I mentioned it before, was the first king of Egypt. And he once attacked Jerusalem early on in this whole period and grabbed the city on the Shabbos in a surprise attack and carried off 100,000 Jews into slavery in Egypt. Not many people are familiar with this. This is a second slavery. I think the Ramban and others talk about it in their explanations of the Tocheho. Uh And he took 100,000 Jews, as I say before, into Egypt and they were there working at the salt mines and who knows what The second time. This is approximately in the year uh, in the 290s BC. His successor, his son, about 10 years later, eight years later, who was Ptolemy II, uh, he freed them all. By that I mean he bought them from each owner. Now, he wasn't an Abraham Lincoln type, but rather he was an economic type. And he said, 100,000 Jews working in salt mines is not a good waste of, is a waste of resources. You let these guys go. Just let them live in Egypt. And you'll see from the 50,000, 100,000 people will come X number of Rothschilds and Bill Gates', And that's exactly what happened. You understand? Which means that that's a typical example of the, not a matter of being liberal, but the intelligent rule demonstrated by these rulers during this period. Therefore, there wasn't actually, as far as we can tell, any pressure on the Jews to convert to any other religion. So they could, so to speak, have their cake and eat it. The Jews could speak Greek, uh, dress like them, and all sorts of things of that nature. Uh, there are certain, th- but at the level of religion, uh, you can't go to a game. You obviously can't go to a parade, which, which has an idol in it. You can't go to a temple, and many other sorts of things, but that's okay, as far as the government was concerned. I don't say the people liked it. In Egypt they certainly didn't, but the, that's the way it was in Ptolemy the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 15th, 16th, and all that. And that's the way it ran all, all the time. Uh, now, nevertheless, we find already strife developing in Eretz We don't have any evidence of this outside of Israel. Uh, if anything, uh, the little that we have tells us that as the Jews, obviously, must have been struggling, as you and I struggle today, to try to balance Yiddishkeit on the one hand and Americanism on the other. As we try to do, they try to do at that time. And uh, a perfect example is the translation of the Bible into Greek. This same King Ptolemy II, who freed the slaves, as I said before, is famous for sponsoring in one way or another, he translated the Bible into Greek. Well, who's he doing it for? So, the stories are not clear. You know, Some say he did it for himself to have an extra book in the library because he went to a library with all the different books in it. That's the way I was taught when I was young. But it comes out today that uh, the Jews in Egypt... Wanted it, as, or let's put it this way: they certainly used it. Those who know the Mishnah, know that in the period I'm talking about, and for hundreds of years afterwards, the Torah, typically speaking, in Egypt and Greece and Asia Minor and all these other areas outside of Israel, was read in Shabbos in Greek. Right? The Mishnah says you can translate the Torah into Greek. You get what I'm saying? Not that they read in Hebrew and translating the Greek. They read in Greek. Right? The creation of Torah was in Greek. I'm just trying to tell you, so deep was the penetration of the outside culture into Jewish norms. And uh, it even turned out, if you want to be very technical about it, that just as in America, first you had the Herz Kumish and the Sansino and this, and eventually you had the, and that was considered treif, and eventually they have the art scroll, and that's considered kosher. The exact same thing happened at that time. The first translations, like the Septuagint, were considered by religious Jews, treif, the Gemara condemns it and all the rest of it, say so it was a bad day. Uh, Eventually, uh, you had Achilles, Arunculus, it's not clear, who translated under the supervision of the Tanoim for Jewish synagogues and Jewish use uh, throughout the Mediterranean Greek world. And this was continued for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I'm just trying to say before that the question of the relationship between religion and the one-hand culture is a very interesting one. Uh, We know a little bit later period that in Egypt they had this guy Philo who wrote dozens and dozens of books Uh, exactly in the R.A. Kaplan style. Now, in the Hellenistic Greek mode, you you wouldn't be interested in reading it today. You understand the life of Abraham, the reasons for the mitzvahs, what's the law, explain the laws of Kashiach, all the rest of it, in a very Hellenistic symbolic fashion. That's exactly what he's trying to do. He's speaking to an educated Greek Jewish audience in terms that uh, they'll try to attract uh, exactly an NCSY or some form along those lines. And uh, that's how they, as far as we know, worked it outside of Israel. But uh, in Israel itself, which is over here, in a small area over here around the Yerushalayim, things got out of hand, it seems, because, and therein lies the tale, because one reason or another, already in the uh, 200s, you start to form different factions between the religious and the non-religious, and uh, by that I mean the Orthodox Jews on one hand, if I can use a, con- a contemporary term and what you call the Hellenists on the other hand, this is, means that there, they didn't work it out in the ways I just described before. You know, so you keep the Torah you reading Greek, or this, that, and the other. Uh, pushing the envelope, the one, the, it seems, we don't know, but it seems that the right got more to the right and the left got more to the left. And, uh, and the power structure was such that there were constant wars between the king and the north, and the king of the south. So if you knew how to maneuver and bribe the people of the government, it's all bribery. Uh, that you can get political power, and the left, if I can use that term, or the the, uh, group called the Hellenists, who originally were people who used their government connections to become the tax farmers, uh, were able to get political power in the small area called Judea, you know, Jerusalem and those areas, and this is a process that built up decade over decade. So, in other words, a tax farmer means then instead of doing like you do in the United States where you have an IRS and there's a whole core of people that you have to pay them and give them health insurance and all the other sorts of things in order for them to staff the tax uh, and, and revenues, uh, instead, we just get one guy over here, or better yet, I'm the king and some guy comes over to me, an enterprising fellow, and he says, I'd like to get the uh, contract to uh, have the exclusive right to collect all the taxes in Baltimore, Maryland, and don't ask how it happens. You Understand? Uh, just the question is what's the price? And you know the king will say, I figure Baltimore is worth twenty million dollars a year in revenues. And the guy said, twenty million dollars and they end up with 17 And a half. And, and, and and he said like this, and here's the money in cash up front. So that's a very good deal for the government if you think strictly in short term. Because what is the guy gonna do? He's gonna go to Baltimore and act like a mafia and he's gonna collect a lot more than seventeen because where's his profit? In order to do that, he's gonna squeeze everybody and crush the businesses and all the rest of it. And within a short time, uh, Baltimore's gonna be empty. This is the system they used at that time because they had mercenary armies and they had to pay and you always have payday, and it's not funny. You know, If you fire an employee, it's one thing if you fire an army, they can kill you. And so <laughs> they, and it's true, and, uh, and uh, I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm sure the laws in, in Maryland and Baltimore, the first people to get paid is the uh, police and, and things like that. The, um, the, you're laughing, you'll see, it's in the Constitution. The, the uh, point is that the kings were of such a nature that they could be bribed. And by the time we get to our first evidence of records, uh, which is the book of the Maccabees, first and second book of Maccabees from the Apocrypha, so they say this Jewish faction went to the king and said, uh, We'll pay you off and give us the high priesthood and control the temple and eventually political power and the territory. And that group said so. You know, only in the movies are all the bad guys united in one group, like in a Baptist thing when I was a kid. they uh, you know, In reality, the different mafias fight with each other. And that's what was happening. You have in great detail in the Second Book of Maccabees the fights between the different mafia groups. These are Jews. And the point is that they uh, wanted and they did use their influence with the government to get absolute power in the territory of Eitz and then these Jews uh, who had it out for the Frum, I'm sure the Frum hated them also uh, proceeded to use their political power I'm talking about soldiers and police to make an attempt to destroy the other side you and I call that Hanukkah okay I'm serious Hanukkah or the Maccabean Wars as we call it are primarily a civil war not exclusively by any means but primarily in its core was a civil war between one set of Jews and another Now, I know the Greeks got slapped into it. The Seleucid government, Antiochus IV, was not a good guy. And, you know, they tortured people and all the rest of it. But uh, remember, Vietnam was kind of like that also. And many wars, actually. It could be Iraq is like that. It turns out we we didn't plan on that. But, you know, it turns out that they're all out to to, to one faction against the other. The primary uh, fact is that what you and I call the Maccabean Wars, as we'll we'll see, was a war between one set of Jews and the other. And they started it, and that's a fact. At least, that's what the books that survive tell us. Okay? And it seems to be so. Uh, which means that, the, that the, the Hellenists, if you wish, used their power to kill and torture the other side. And there's whole records, if I just say the word Han and the Seven Sons, it already rings to mind. Well, these were, uh, these, these were acts instigated by these Jews. Now, I'll say it again. The king was on their side for a variety of reasons. And... They had the police power and the military power, all the rest of it. But if you read closely the book of Maccabees, and I'll just tell you a story that you all know right away, uh, that you remember from childhood, even though it's not in the Gemara, it's only in the Apocrypha, how did the revolt of the Maccabees start? Well, the Greeks came into a town, and they set up an altar, remember? And they said to "Yo, you go and offer the first sacrifice, and you'll get a big position. And he said, no way. And then what happened? They said, a Jew, a Jew, step forward, Hellenistic Jew, to offer the carbon, Amazio killed him, and then killed the Greeks. So means the first person that died in the Maccabean Revolt was a Jew. Killed by a Jew. Okay. Uh, you all remember this story, I'm sure. The Gemara uh, actually has a slightly different version of this, but we won't go into that. The, the, the point is that uh, that was at the heart of the fight that lasted for 35 years, 40 years, that's a long time to have a civil war in an area as small as Israel, the only area around Yerushalayim, and it's a uh, Jew versus Jew. And again, if you take the trouble to read simply the first book of Maccabees, you'll see over and over again that uh, it's a Jew against the Jew. You understand? In fact, the revolt starts when it says Mattathias runs away to the mountains and then forms a little group of guerrillas. And then they come at night and they swoop down on towns in classic guerrilla style. Uh, and, they, and he says, he smote sinners in their wrath and lawbreakers in their righteous anger. Well, who are the sinners and the lawbreakers? You understand? and they circumcised by force as many of the children as they could find. And then they would run back into the mountains. Okay, now again, as we all know, I'm sure, that didn't stay that way for long. The king sent this army in and then that army, in, and then you get the Maccabean Wars. But all through the period, if you look closely, the heart of the conflict is Jew against Jew. And at numerous times in this book, uh, you'll see that the Greeks, or the Seleucid government to be exact, we're ready to call it quits or negotiate a settlement or do things of that nature. It's not kaddai as they say before, like people today say, let's withdraw from Iraq. He had exactly the same kinds of movements in the Syrian government. And the Jews will come forward, the Hellenists, and they'll say, we served the king and we were uh, willing to suffer on his behalf and now we're being left in the lurch. And the Syrians evade once again. It happens a number of times. And uh, yes, we know that the story of the Maccabean Wars is that the Jews win, but it was an up and, up and down business. For example, they won a bunch of battles and then they, they recaptured the base of Midrash and that's called Hanukkah. But five years later, Judah and Maccabees killed in battle against the Greeks. And they retake everything. Okay? And, uh, and why were they brought back in? If you read very closely, the old king Antiochus IV died and Antiochus V and then this new guy, Demetrius, came along and the Hellenists go to Demetrius and say, why are you letting this, you know, it's a, it's a chel Hashem, so to speak, <laughs> you know, that they're, that they're crushing us and so So it's a Jew against Jew. So uh, you see my point. The um, theme of the Civil War uh, only gets worse as time goes on. After the death of Judah Maccabee, for example, we're told, in the Monk of Maccabees, then the persecution of the religious Jews assumed unprecedented proportions. Wait a minute. That's after Han and the Seven Sons, whose kids were fried, by the way. Not, uh, whose, uh, you know, that's after the Kohen god Eleazar is pulled apart at the rack. That's after all the, the mothers were taken for, for allowing their kids to be circumcised. They tied a the baby around the neck and pushed him off a cliff or the high walls of Jerusalem, but the whole family and anybody was at the circumcision, that was the good part. And then after the death of Judah Maccabee came the bad part, and it said because the irreligious ones and the lawless ones began to try to exterminate the religious ones. Those are the words used in the book of Maccabees. So uh, very bitter business, okay? Now when Judah Maccabees killed, his, t- his brother takes over, Jonathan, and uh, he's able to maneuver a little bit better because the Greeks started getting into major civil wars, and this turned out to be the Yeshua of the Maccabees. The fact that the enemy was constantly uh, battling against each other, he's able to play to a degree, play one off against the other. And then it says, and then so then when he got power, he went ahead and started to exterminate the irreligious ones out of the country. So there you go. It's this group versus this group, and then Jonathan gets killed in treachery by the Greeks, and then Shimon is the next brother. Uh, takes over and uh, he becomes the third leader, and he's able to defeat them once again and to consolidate power. All during this period, there's something very interesting going on, uh, once again recorded in the book of Maccabees, and that is who are the quote unquote religious Jews? Or who are the Maccabees? Well, the Maccabees are five brothers, so who, who's, who's fighting with them? You say the, the from Jews. That's, that doesn't work. Who, who is it? What is it? And so it says there, if you just have to read it closely. They had a band of, of men uh, who were used to going out to war. I don't know where he found them, but he found Jewish GIs, you understand, who must have been mercenaries from elsewhere, who were religious or opposed to this. That's one group. And then they had the Hasidim, the Asidoi, as they write in the Greek, the Hasidim. And it says these were a zealous group, each one ready to lay down their life in defense of the Torah. Those are the words used in the book of, it's in Greek, of course, but, uh, but that's what it says. Uh, these are very from Jews. Uh, one of the first things they have to deal with in the book is, can you fight on Shabbos? Well, it's not so simple, because uh, I know many people think they know these rules, but actually, it turns out most people never get them right. So you think of the big three, that you can give your life, you can, except for the big three. Not in the Shas Hashman, not when there's a war against the Jewish religion. This, what I'm describing, is the original and the classic model of the Shas Hashman of the wars out to destroy Judaism. That's what it was. Uh, and so, in that time, uh, every mitzvah becomes the hargval yavr in the yeshiva uh, terminology. In other words, you can't even change your yarmulke, your shoelaces, things like that. Which means you have to give up your life rather than, uh, not only rather than do a mitzvah, but you have to give up your life if they tell you not to eat a bagel on Sunday morning. You know? So the, it's, 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 uh, it's very severe. And so think about this. Uh, the Greeks came, we're told, to a bunch of Hasidim who would run away because they don't want to fight, they just want to keep Shabbos, keep keep Judaism far away, like in the Dead Sea area. And they chased after him into a cave. And they attacked him on a Saturday. And they said, Come on out, or we're coming after you. And they said, We're not fighting back. And they said, Well, we're going to burn you out. And they did. And all these guys inside says it's when you're a witness that we die innocent. Okay, big deal. So they killed him, a thousand people. And obviously, these people figured, like I just said before. If it's a shah sashmad, then you have to give it your life. You cannot violate Shabbos, even if you, it costs you your life. That's the mentality of the type of They're very from. Uh, but then they survivors join the Maccabean army, and next thing you know, they issued a new ruling, which is in the Gemara and in the Book of Maccabees, which is you can fight back on Shabbos for defensive war. With the idea being like this. You machal Shabbos one week, so you can keep many other Shabbosim. Uh, you know, without going into the technicalities of it, I'm just trying to show you a matter of the mindset, okay? Um, now, what's interesting is that that means in the Maccabean side, you have the moderate religious, the very religious, this group, that group, the GIs, and all, all, all the rest of it. Along the way, we find a difference of opinion arising among the from. And that is, should we go for establishment of State of Israel or not? Right? Should we be Zionist in addition to being religious, or, or not? Uh, the Jews, as you've seen, had not been an independent state for many centuries, since the first temple. When they came in, in the Bais as we call it, in the time of Cyrus the Great and Ezra and Nehemia, they were a province under the Persian Empire. Subsequently, they were a province under Alexander's Empire, when he conquered it. Subsequently, they were a province of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, when they conquered it. So the Jews never had any political independence, and the religious model was... Not to have a political side, you concentrate entirely on your religious life. After all, if somebody's very religious, what do you, you don't even need a government, right? All you need is liquid. You know, in other words, it's, it's no, no. <laughs> You're laughing, but think about what I'm saying. If you have the opportunity to learn, and you have the freedom to practice your religion, and you can concentrate full time on uh, Ruchnias, that's how the Rambam descri- describes the Messianic era at the very end of the Mishnah Torah. He said, what do they want a state and all that for? they can concentrate on Yiddish the Well, they already had that, you see? to their way of thinking. So uh, now, nobody planned it, not Judah, Maccabee, not anybody else, but the war that arose as a reactive war of the religious against the Hellenists had become de facto a war for political independence. This often happens in history, where a struggle over one thing, over the course of the war, I might even say it's a rule in history that no war ever start, ends the way you th- thought about it at the beginning. It's certainly true of Iraq. Certainly true of Vietnam. It's certainly true of Israel's wars, the Six Day War and the Yom Kippur War and all the rest. Certainly true of the Lebanon War two years ago. That's a rule in history. You gotta be very careful when you get involved in a war because things change and it never looks like you planned at the end. You may be certain that they didn't figure in 1945 that's it's gonna look like when they started in 1939. That's how it goes. So over here, uh, we find that the very religious, the Hasidim were saying already, uh, as long as we can defeat the Greeks and get them to stop bothering us, we can go back to square one. If they'll agree to go back the way things were before and not bother our religion, we'll go back under them. And against that, the Maccabees saying, You're crazy. I mean, that's a nice world, but this is the Middle East, and you can never put down your gun. You know, if the state of Israel today gains a peace with the Arabs, and I'm skeptical, like everybody's skeptical about that, but they gain a the peace with the Arabs, they will not be able to put down the army, the gun, for a second. Even in the best case scenario, You'll have to watch like a hawk 24-7. We all know this. So Judah Maccabee and these guys says the same thing now. Whatever happens, we're going to have to, you know, we're we going to have to set up a state of Israel. So there's already difference of opinion in this rank. Okay? Now, the war's ended, as we know, finally, uh, with the defeat of the Greeks, and more importantly, the religious Jews defeating the non-religious Jews. The question is, what happens then? There was a whole. Pe- I just described a period of 40, 50 years in which there was profound violence and killing and all kind of terrible things. Uh, family members! You understand the has a story about Riosi bin Yossi, I think, or Riosi one of the two people mentioned in Pirkei- uh, Pirkeiobos, the leading rabbi at that time who was led to the crucifixion by his own nephew. So knows, the uncle was religious the nephew was a communist already, was a, was a Hellenist. You have these kinds of stories. Uh, that's what happens when you get these kind of battles. And that's why... I Civil wars and family wars are particularly vicious. Um, and that's why this is the beginning of what I describe as a slippery slope. Kay? The uh, Maccabean wars ended with the victory of one over the other, but it's not so simple. Because what happened when, uh, by the time you get to Shimon, the last of the Maccabee brothers, and the Greeks are beaten for the umpteenth time, and it doesn't look like they're coming back, and they, and they really are never coming, they come back once, and, 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 and they're not successful. By this time, uh, the Maccabees, Jake, let's, let's get that other map, uh, you know, Palestine. The Mac- by that time, the Maccabees, as we call them, had developed an army. You know, after 40 years of fighting, you learn something. 45 years of fighting. And so, the state of Israel that I'm talking about is this small area called Judea over here. It's really small. Not this. Just this little area. That's how big Israel was. The time we're talking about. This is where all the battles of, of Judah and Maccabee uh, and so forth, or just, be, just about all of them, take place against the Greeks. Um, they finally got their, so to speak, independence. Even the Greek kings had to recognize it and allow them to make coins and things of that nature. Fine. Uh, and now what? So here's something very interesting. One would think that the religious Jews would seize the opportunity to liquidate the opposition. After all, they were trying to liquidate them. That doesn't seem to have what happened. That doesn't seem not to have happened. Okay? Um, I'm not saying it's good, I'm saying bad. It's, it, it, it's not what seems to have happened. It, on the contrary, in a very interesting way, uh, the last of the Maccabee rulers, Shimon, the brother of Judah Maccabee, uh, ma- seems, to have made, seems to have made overtures to uh, patch up relations with the uh, Hellenist Jews. After all, why were these guys on the other side so strong for Hellenism? They wanted to gain power. Uh, they backed the wrong horse. What do you do when you back the wrong horse and your cause is not gonna win? Uh, If you're a person of principle, you'll die for your principles. If you're not a person of principle, if it's more a matter of opportunism, uh, they wanted to seize power, you try to uh, accommodate to the new situation. Uh, Let me put it this way, anybody remembers, anybody's old enough to remember the end of World War II, you hear it all the time, they were very surprised. The people had jobs under the Nazis, all of a sudden had jobs under the communists. The same concentration of guards before and policemen, now jobs are here. the rear. Aye, I thought fascism was like this and communism was like that. It's two opposing principles. A snitch is a snitch. You understand? Know and they'll, they'll reinvent themselves or they'll just change their clothes a little bit to go and, 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 and get in under the new uh, guise. That, that's what happened here. Okay? Uh, the Hellenists, as I say before, uh, even married to get into the family of the high priest, Shimon, because as I say before, although nobody planned it, what happened de facto was the establishment of a state of Israel. And I use the word state of Israel with all of its problematic connotations precisely because this was not the way it's envisioned in the Torah. They didn't have it in exactly the Lechachil dika fashion. There wasn't a king from the house of David anywhere to be seen. Um, they didn't have a prophet and all the sorts of things that are associated with it. And uh, everybody was, was very aware of it. All the people that we're talking about were what we call Orthodox Jews. And it's very interesting. You look in the book of Maccabees near the end, they have a, a, a national convention. And at the convention, they have a long speech in which they say, since the Maccabee brothers were Moser Nefesh, literally, they gave up their lives on behalf of the Jewish people and the Jewish religion and the base of Migdosh and really fought selflessly in the front ranks of the battle. On, 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 on the, so we feel as a nation, we owe them a debt of gratitude. And by the way, every bit of that was true. They, didn't, uh, they really did you know, serve uh, to, on behalf of Klaus Yisrael. Uh, therefore, we resolve that they'll from now on be the Kohen Gadot, uh also the commander in chief of the army, and thirdly, uh, the chief of the civil administration to order everybody around their tasks. Now, in another country, they call it a king, but they deliberately avoided the term king out of religious reasons. A king is a king. These were, I'll say it again, these were Orthodox Jews, but history hadn't worked out the way they. <laughs> It was supposed to. Right? There wasn't a king from the house of David. There wasn't a prophet. There wasn't a, you know, the, I know the way the movie should go, but this is the way it went. And so it's true that a Jewish religion, at least as far as the Torah is concerned, doesn't seem to know about king, priests who are kings, unless you literally read, you know, which, which some do, but that's not, not the normal meaning of it. Uh, but that's the way it happened. You see? And uh, were the rabbis, everybody else uh, comfortable with this? We'll never know. It seems 50-50. You see? Because it wasn't uh, you know, the way they planned it. None of this worked out the way they planned it. You can't say they lived happily ever after. But then they had a state. Uh, as I say before, the high priest, uh, Shimon, and, and the king, in, in effect, uh, he married uh, he, his daughter married a, a, le- a member of a leading uh, Hellenist family. What's that all about? is interesting? Uh, now, mind you, a lot of these Hellenists had big yichas, as we would say today. and I mean, really big yichas. Uh, they were trying to patch things up, it would seem. Didn't work so well. His son-in-law killed him. And, and the rest of the family. The whole Maccabee family was killed by the son-in-law Ptolemy, the son of Abubas, with the exception of one who was not there. He was elsewhere, and he survived. And the assassins were either punished or fled the country. And so the plot to wipe out a single blow the entire Maccabee enterprise and bring back the Greek religion and everything else failed because of the absence of one member you know, at the, at the, at the party. And uh, that person was Yochum Kohen Gadol, John Herkinis, who took over afterwards. And as they say before, he killed or got rid of the assassins. And now he became Koen Gadol, commander-in-chief of the army, head of civil administration and all the rest of it. Or as they find on his coins, Rosh Hever HaYehudim. Which is a title they made up. There's no such thing like that. Rosh Hever HaYehudim Head Jew. Okay? Now, well, that, 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 that's what it was. Now, here's the thing. Here you have a Maccabee, or now we call them Hasmonians. Hasmonians, That's the term the historians called The five brothers of Maccabees and their descendants of the Hashmonom. Uh, and he's in charge, and what does he want to do? He says, look, uh, you know, they're trying to kill us and all the rest of it. He said, now I'm in charge, and we have a big army. Uh, there was a Greek invasion at the beginning, but you know, they went away. And say said, we have a big army. Let's use it. Uh, we're powerful, and the others are weak now because the Greeks are fighting among themselves, the Seleucids. And these other groups, let's go after him and reconquer Eretz Yisroel. Uh, the rabbis opposed this. Very interesting. They were softies. The Sanhedrin's, we call them, they obviously, they seem to take the position that, you know, what price glory? There's no family in the country that hasn't lost, you know, the widows and orphans and uh, victims in the war. There's no farm that hasn't been ruined. The Jewish people have gone through 40 years of bloodshed. It's been terrible. Go easy on them. They didn't agree. And so you had right versus, right, you know, two opposing opinions. The head person, the Kohen Gadol, the head of the army and all the rest are on the one hand and the Sanhedrin or the rabbis if you want to call them that on the other hand. What do you do? And he was a firm guy. In fact, he's mentioned many times in the Mishnah as the author of Tachonus like Dama, Yocha, and Kohen Gadol. So what do you do? He was, uh, as I say before, he wanted his way but he didn't want to go against the other religious Jews. Uh, that's number one. Number two, um, when they won the war, the uh, religious people, the Chassidim, wanted to do like in the movies, go back home, and it's all over, and go back to learning. And so the army sort of disintegrated, everybody else, you know, when there's a war on to save Judaism, that's one thing, but not, well not, not. And, and he said, well, who's going to, you know, who's going to man the borders, who's going to run the country? Who's going to be the secretary of state and do the other thing? I mean, you can't have like an Israel to sign the last one out, turn off the lights. What are you going to do? And so these were fundamental problems that lay in the beginning of the first and only Jewish Commonwealth in the entire Second Temple period. Because for the 400 or 500 whatever years of the Baishani period, the Jews never had an independent state except now for a short period. Okay? They were under the Persians, as I said before, and Alexander the Great, and Seleucus, and later on in the Romans. The only window of time when the Jews had their own Medina. Uh, was as a result of the unplanned consequences of the Maccabean Wars. You see? Now, uh, where am I going with this? The results were that a profound split took place uh, between the ruler on the one hand and the rabbis on the other. And uh, he didn't want to go directly against them because he was too religious for that, and so he went around them. And so he said, you don't want to, Draft an army because you said people fought too much already and they're against the draft. And you don't want to raise taxes to ma- maintain an army and fight wars because the people have been taxed too heavy. I'll tell you, the Chazal always in the Gemara, and Josephus even who doesn't like them always said they're a bunch of softies. You understand? And we know I mean, many places where you know that they said anybody who kills a neck kills in 70 years is that uh, bloody. So uh, they really try to say, think of the people. Don't think of the glorious uh, parades and all that. You know, think of the casualties that are involved in all this sort of thing. Well, you had an irresistible force versus an Im- immovable object. And so what he did is he made an end run around them. He went and he, ro- and he got money by robbing the grave of King David because he used to b- bury kings with a ton of money and it was considered taboo to mess with it. And he said, this is good for national purposes. It's okay, number one. And with that, he, he uh, hired a mercenary army of non-Jews. And then he said, I like guess, what am I doing wrong? You know what I'm saying? I'm not drafting anybody. I'm raising no taxes. And I get off my back. And that's what happened. And so he proceeded during his reign of 30 years to conquer this, you see over Edomia and this Samaria, which is a big territory, and even this over here, which means he tripled or more the size of the Jewish part of Israel. Long wars. You go up to Beit Shan, these places. That's, you know, you go there, they sort the of Maccabean battlefields and all this sort of thing, the sieges. These, these victories uh, are recorded by the rabbis as holidays in the, what they call the Megillus Tynes. It's Beit Shan Day, for example. You Yom agrees him and things of this nature. Everybody liked the fact, you know, gonna, but they didn't like the, you know, but wasn't, it didn't smell right. You understand? Second of all, the question becomes, who do you take into the government? And if you have mercenary army, who are the Jewish officers? If you can't get them from Lakewood, where are you going to get them from? The answer is the Hellenists said, okay, until now we backed the Greek government, we had this plan. Okay, that didn't work. You know, in politics, it was a mistake. Now I want to serve the communists. You know what I'm saying? Now we'll go and join your side. We have experience in administration. Many of them came from rich and powerful families, they had experience in being officers in the army. We'll be in a Jewish army. It'll literally be a secular Zionist army, so to speak. You know what I'm and that's what happened. And so, ironically, uh, the group that had been uh, fought against and displaced as a result of the Maccabean War was able to get itself back into power. And that's why this entire period that we're talking about now, which is the only time when there was an independent Jewish state there formed two violently opposed factions, the Prushim and the Tzadokim. And the people I just described, the Hellenists, who reinvented themselves, are the Sadducees, the Tzadokim. You get it? They were the same people who had fought in this capacity and now in this one. And the uh, Orthodox Jews, so to speak, end up being called the Prushim, you know, whether it was the original Chassim group or some other group along those lines, roughly speaking, we can identify with the rabbis. You see? And Josephus, who was a Sadducee, says that these Pharisees have the support of the masses. You see? Uh, The Sadducees are only the rich and the powerful. There you go. You see? Now, uh, this poisoned the next period of Jewish history. I just told you, you had 40 years of battles between Jew against Jew during what we call Hanukkah and the Maccabean uh, Wars. And you figured out was over? No. Now starts another 40, 50, 60, 70 years of the same thing, just the teams, the same teams just under different names, right? This group is called the Perushim, and this called the Tudukim. Or in Greek, this called called the Pharisees, and this group is called the Sadducees. And so, John Hyrcanus, the ruler, uh, he was, I mean, his parents were Maccabee. he was a religious Jew. And he really was. Uh, but, you know, uh, even though he was a religious Jew, he never went to yeshiva. I mean, I'm serious about this. Yeah, if you just do the numbers, see, he was born in wartime. He was one of these kids, like you read about, that I'm sure from the time they're 10 or 11, they're, they're fighting. You see? He, was, he was a general, like at, at 17 or 18. Right? Now, he fought for the Jews. And if you want to be exact about it, he fought for the Torah. Uh, but he's not somebody who's really interested in the makhluk between the Tosis and the rajbo. You see, that's not what it is. Uh, for the best of reasons. You understand? It's not, it's not indignant. That's how the life turned out. He actually, unfortunately, if push comes to shove, has much more in common with whom? You know, what's the latest battle figures? What's the intrigues of this country? Let's hear the lush and hard going on in the court of Egypt and how can use it? Because that's what every country does in the Middle East from then till today. They're always maneuvering. It's like Hobbes, it's a war of all against all. Constantly. And so, little by little, over the course of his reign without going into great detail he uh, shifted his sentiments until he became totally alienated from the from even though he had emerged from their ranks and became identified with the seducing with the sadducees and so this same person who tripled or real i mean look at it you can see the map better now as well as i can I mean, it's a considerable aggregation of territory over here by the time he finished the state of israel or judea was the largest single unit in palestine uh, by the time he finished, that's true, but he, at a famous banquet, uh, which is recorded in the Gomorrah and in Josephus, he had a fight with the uh, Pharisees, he, you know, they, they, they insulted him, things like that, and he uh, killed them. So then he killed all the rabbis. Okay. I mean, he went after the son Henry and killed them and their followers, except the ones that fled. And so that's really a 180 degree turn. And uh, what was the point of the Maccabean Wars? You see? Uh, this is an example of, and this is the beginning of a period of violent civil conflict between two sets of Jews, uh, right? We screwed it up when we had the state, okay? And he died a year or two after he declared war on the rabbis. His son was also bad. In fact, his son Aristobulus even took the title of Philhellene, the lover of the Greeks, which is kind of funny in the Maccabees. And in the, in, he was king for one year and conquered the Galilee, which is, again, A considerable accomplishment. No question about that. And so by the time he finished, the Jews had from here up to here. Okay? So you see, very good. That's what you call a successful king. But the religious, that's not what they call a successful king. The acquisition of territory in and of itself is not the name of the game. Or is it? It depends on how you define the game. If you're a Sadducee, if you're a Hellenist, if you're a Greek in general, a successful king, usually in history books, a successful king is a guy that wins wars and conquers territory. And the religious thing, it's a, di- a different calculus, follow? Uh, when he died, after a year, under mysterious circumstances, he was a, he, he killed a bunch of, he was a piece of work. He didn't like his mother, <coughs> put her, he put, put her in, in a jail and locked the door and never opened the door again. Okay, the, um, uh, he killed several brothers, things like that. You know, they became very uh, Greek. Suffice it to say that the guy who came after him was Alexander Yanai, uh, for whatever reason. And uh, he w- also was the son of John Harkness. And in his reign, he conquered all of this, right, that, that crosshatch part, and all of this. I mean, Israel doesn't even have this today. This is the Gaza Strip, okay? And in long bloody wars, which it was urban warfare, described in gory detail, you see how he describes the battle. Of, you know, Israel's talking today about the Battle of Gaza. Uh, before they do that, I'm sure they do, read Josephus on the Battle of Gaza and how ugly it got, and you know what you're in for. Like the Marines know in Fallujah in such places. Okay? Uh, that's half the story. Once again, the other half of the story is that whereas he came, his wife was religious. Okay? Shlomus Alexandra. His wife was religious. Uh, she, she's the one who married him. He didn't marry her. He, he was in jail. She got him to marry him, and that's how he became the king uh, from Yibam. Uh, her, her brother was the head of the rabbis, uh, Shim Ben Shetach. Okay? Um, and so you have major intrigues. It's like a snake pit at the royal court of King Alexander Yannick, because that's what he was. He was already a king. They, they adopt, dropped the pretense of, you know, we're not really a king. They already were Sadducees. And they said, let's go for it. And, you know, we're kings and, and that's it. And if the Torah doesn't agree with it, let's redefine the Torah. That's what they did. They redefined the Torah. That's what we called the Sadducees, the Tzedukim. They have their own interpretation of the Torah for political reasons. And the result was that his period was a reign of conquest, but also a profound civil war, because... The religious Jews at the beginning of his reign, he let them alone and they started doing like they do now Torah and Torah. They started spreading yeshivas and schools all over the country, which was a political act. Just like the building of schools and yeshivas and beis in the state of Israel today is a political act. That's not all it is, but it is a political act. You understand? There are consequences, of, let's put it this way. If you live in Yerushalayim, the religious, in, in neighborhood is because that, that's a political act. You understand? It's also a religious act, I understand. Uh, so things came to a head, and he insulted them, and they threw estrogues at him. Many will remember that story from the Mishnah, and the war was on. And uh, two teams, the king's army, the Sadducees, all the rest of it, the Pharisees mustered an army, Josephus says, of 75,000. So it's ironic, you know, these are people that, that, that want to sit and learn, but the feelings had developed so powerfully against one another. Uh, read the Avos in the first chapter, and you'll see, how parts appeared. Harkek mishachin raw altes chaber Rosha, Stay away from all these people. Have nothing to do with them. All comes from this period. Uh, that in the battles that took place, uh, first, first he lost and then he won. When he won, he killed fifty thousand of the Pharisees. This is a Jewish king, Goro, and the leaders of the and the rabbis he uh, brought back to Jerusalem. And I'm uh, is to Brought Jerusalem and he threw a party. Uh, a wild party, and the uh, entertainment of the evening was that the 800 leading Pharisees were crucified uh, in front of him. This was the fun of the evening, and their children and their wives, their throats were cut in front of them, so they should die slowly and see this. And uh, Exactly. I mean, it's a, So the Maccabean period, the Hasmonean period, turned out lousy. Now you can say like this, well, well look what they did. You know? It's an impressive uh, accomplishment, and it is. The Jews over here reconquered the whole of Eretz throne. even more than they had in the rishan period. If you look closely at this, this is the ancient Israel, but they also had the coastline. This was the Philistines in the biblical time, and he took it. And up here was the Phoenicians, and he took that. And down here is what he called Amon and Mom, and he took that also. So if you want to go by strictly territory acquisition, he considers himself a successful guy. On the other hand, uh, what is this? Once again, the, Jew, the, the, the profound problem of the Jewish civil wars Civil wars, uh, ate away at the body politic and poisoned the atmosphere and made it that Prusham and and Ferris, and Saddam. It's not just like one person wears a white hat and one person wears a black hat. It got down to the level of, of major violence. What I described to you, you get the aid of major violence. And he himself realized it. And uh, having the mentality of a Greek politician, of what we say to the politician, after all the killing was over and he saw he was so hated by the public, and loathed by them. He didn't want to be an unpopular king. You know, Stalin wants to be popular too. <laughs> so he asked the other side, so what can I do to make up, you know, and, and, and make myself popular again? And they said, "You yeah, drop dead. <laughs> no, 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 that's the words that was used. That's what Josephus said. He said, drop dead. And he realized that he had made a mistake, not that he had charot, but he made a mistake in terms of popularity on his deathbed when he was dying. And he died besieging one last fort, you know. It's up here. They wanted to capture one more fortress, and he died, you know, three days before the fort was going to fall. He even told his army, his wife, don't tell him I'm dead. Keep me in the palace, because I know in another three days the place will go, and we'll get one more town. And that, that's how he was. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. And uh, once again, in Josephus and in the Gemara, they have very remarkably similar stories, where he pretty much told his wife on his deathbed, he said, you know, I made a mistake. Don't make the mistake—the same mistake I had of alienating the people. You get it? Uh, the Gemara says that he, said he was betrayed by the hypocrites. This is, we're learning now, Parshish Pinchas, this week is Parshas Pinchas. Yana is reported to have said to his wife, don't worry about the Pharisees, and don't worry about the Pharisees, watch out for the Tzivuim, that they act like Zimri, but they want their word of Pinchas, which means they're hypocrites. Now that means, like every politician who ever lived, it wasn't my fault, I was misled by my advisors. You understand? You know, it's the old thing, it's never me. It's, it's the other people's fault. But he knew a mistake had been made you see, and for a variety of reasons, did implement what he said. <clears throat> he, he told them, it's remarkable in Josephus, he says, I know my enemies, the Pharisees, because I killed them all fought with them for many years. <clears throat> they can make an unbreakable king, but they're softies. So what happens like this. When I'm dead, bring my body back to Jerusalem and give it to them and say, here he is, do whatever you want to, to the body. You understand? Let it out. And you'll see, when push comes to shove, I know <laughs> these people, they won't do it. They'll give me a more dignified funeral than I could have had in, uh, in, in any other context. But kachoya, that's happened because they won temporarily. They got the power because the queen, she's, I think, the only queen in Jewish history. Shlomus Alexander ruled for nine years. It was a time of peace and prosperity. It's the only window. But that means, that means that she took the power away from the Sadducees and gave it to the Pharisees. But once again, when the Pharisees were in power, they did not go ahead and liquidate the opposition. Right? They said, you know, there's been enough fighting, all the residents, So for nine years they had peace and, and prosperity. I might say that they did, they did what the governments dream about. And Josephus, who doesn't like them, says that the country was ruled this time by a woman and the rabbis ruled the woman and it was a disgrace and was horrible. It's true that they cut the taxes in half and doubled the army and that there was peace and prosperity and all the countries around them were afraid of Israel. And it's true that there was an enormous burst of prosperity, that the Gemara says that the uh, oranges were the size of watermelons and so forth. But uh, it was a disgraceful period, as he puts in history, which means that it was a respite. But unfortunately, only a respite, and what you have already started to see, is a fever, right? That there was 40 years of war with the Maccabees, and now 40 there was years There's another 40, 50 years of war following the Maccabee period under the Chashmanoim, under the rulers that we just talked about. Uh, so, and I'm talking about civil war over here. And uh, if there was a small respite at the end, uh, un- unfortunately, uh, this was not characteristic of the period that was about to uh, follow, and uh, the phenomenon of internecine Jewish conflict, where the Jews are fighting and killing each other, uh, was to uh, continue and be aggravated, and uh, unfortunately, this period, which was the only period when the Jews had an independent state during the Baya period, was marred by this kind of uh, severe form of uh, machlokas, shall we say, and, uh, and then uh, the story gets worse. But that's the end of part one.